Imagine being the CEO of one of the world's fastest growing fintech companies at the age of 25. My guest today did just that. By the age of 22, he dropped out of his MIT PhD to move to New York and started a platform for trading cryptocurrency assets. Together with his co-founders, he raised over $10 million in funding and now leads a team of almost 30 brilliant people. This is John Purifoy from the Floating Point Group. Enjoy. Palms are sweaty. These weak palms are heavy. His palm almost sweater already. Mom's forgetting. He's nervous, <laughs> but on the surface he looks calm and ready to drop bombs. But he keeps on forgetting. I don't know. Are we, gonna do, are we gonna do a rap interview? <laughs> uh, I would be very down to that. If, you, if you're okay with a rap interview, if you guys are okay with that, we'll try to put some tunes in there. My name's JP. Don't mess with me. I'm coming out of MIT with my homie. <laughs> I would lose if we did that rap battle. <laughs> I think you can do it pretty well. All right, John. I'm very excited to talk to you today um, because you have one of the most crazy CVs that I've ever read in my life. You're very kind. You're only 25 and you're already the CEO of a very fancy company in New York. Oh, thank you. I appreciate <laughs> that. That's very kind of you. So I'm really curious. Let's take like many steps back to, you know, let's say your high school days. Sure. How did you become interested in going to MIT in science and technology? So I grew up in Missouri. And if you don't know Missouri, there's not that much to do in Missouri. All right, I'm gonna apologize in advance. If you've seen Ozark, there's some things to do, there's just not that many things to do. And so growing up, I was really curious about the world around me. I was curious about physics, I was curious about programming, things like that. So for me, you know, there wasn't that much to do, so I did those things. Mm -hmm. And um, in my high school, how popular you were was directly correlated with how good you were at League of Legends. Now, unfortunately, <laughs> I studied a little bit for my classes. Maybe I shouldn't have done that and played more video games. But I did, and because of that, I wasn't very good at video games. So my first idea was, I'm gonna build a program to be better at video games and kick my friend's butts at video games. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, League of Legends doesn't have an API or anything like that. They've now started to come out with some of the stuff StarCraft has actual APIs that you can connect and build bots on. Um, but that was kind of my first thing of getting into programming. I was interested in the world around me, wanted to automate things, I wanted to actually build a computer program to beat my friend's to beat my friends, that way I'd have friends. Uh, and then I think the second part of that is I was really interested in physics and some of the mm -hmm. initial OCW work that MIT did. I, I think even to this day, it's probably some of the most enticing and interesting and, and energizing things out OCW there. OCW are the online courses that they have. 100% OCW, online courseware. I think it's amazing. Even today, I still listen to a lot of the nuclear science mm -hmm. lectures. Uh, there's like some really good stuff actually on Chernobyl and like you know why, why things happen and what's going on there. Um, yeah, I mean, I think OpenCourseWare really did an amazing job. And this is probably a side comment, but I think MIT as an organization did an incredible job of focusing on online learning mm -hmm. and seeing how that could really bring that to the masses. And to be honest, that I think became an amazing marketing tool for the university in a lot of ways. So, you know, happy to talk about that. But in terms of my own story, yeah, so I got really interested in programming and mm -hmm. I got really interested in that. And then the other thing was I was always interested in business. So mm -hmm. I'd sell candy at school. I think many great entrepreneurs start that way. Uh, and, I, and I would sell a lot of candy. Um, and so, so, so I did that. Um, I was fortunate my senior year or my junior year to go to a program at MIT called MIT Launch. Mm -hmm. uh, it was effectively where you learn how to start a company. Company is a little bit of a kind word here. <laughs> I, I think it's really more of a project. Yeah. Uh, but we kind of started with this company with this idea of like helping people through college admissions and you know like helping them through the application process. And we sold exactly one 
exactly one item from this company. We made $20, go team. Uh, and that was kind of the first business I ever did. And so I kind of got interested in that. And then when I eventually came to MIT and got the chance to come here, um, it was just a playground. It was amazing. I mean, mm -hmm. I think, you know, I think everyone when we're children, right, we have ambitions. We want to change the world. We want yeah. to wake up and see how far can we push things. And I think for me, that was a lot of what MIT was about, is let me discover my limits. Let me see where I can push myself and let me go discover that. Um, and that was kind of what drew me to it, and that's what drew me to it. I think that's what draws everyone anywhere they go. Mm -hmm. um, so anyways, maybe that's a little bit of kind of the intro of the story, and happy to dive deeper, but broadly speaking, grew up in Missouri, not that much to do, so we learned how to program and start, start little ventures at school and learn physics, and then eventually I came to MIT and got to do those things more professionally. Oh, nice. So let's talk about MIT. How did you like your first years? Um, what were like the big pluses or positive sides and negative sides? Let me start out this by saying, I do not recommend how I did MIT to anyone. <laughs> I just don't. My first year at MIT was all about classes and academics. So MIT has a cool program where effectively you can test out of classes if you study for them. And so I did that. So I studied for a lot. I tested out of a couple classes and I was very fortunate. Um, and then my spring semester, uh, MIT actually allows you to take as many classes as you want. They call it the true MIT experience. Uh, now, noticeably, everyone, because they don't have half a brain, decides to sign up for 16 classes. Uh, I signed up for eight, um, and so I took a lot of classes. And so my freshman year was really about taking a lot of classes and learning academics. Unfortunately, you might discover uh, that really doesn't give you much chance to meet people or network or have friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of you're seeing a trend here. Yeah. Uh, and so my sophomore year was a little bit more focused on that, a little bit more focused on kind of social build out, understanding and learning. I got a little bit deeper in research um, and a lot of things like that. And then my junior year, I really, really, really started spending a lot of time in student government. Mm -hmm. um, MIT gave a lot to me. I genuinely have a lot to thank this place for changing my life in a lot of ways. Um, and so I spent a lot of time on institute committees, helping with various things across, you know, doing advising or doing leadership. I was president of my fraternity, I was on the IFC, I served in a lot of different kind of communities and capabilities um, and things like that. And I also started doing a lot of research. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, as, as you well know, because you're far smarter than I in a lot of this, uh, I, I did research in photonic computing and applying neural networks to solving problems in physics. So that was kind of what I spent a lot of time on. And then my senior year is really when I started getting really, really deep in entrepreneurship. Um, so I traveled around a bit, talking about it, teaching it in different places, um, and different things like that. So that's kind of my journey. I, I typically describe, like I say, when I was at MIT, I really spent time on three things. Mm -hmm. I spent time in student government, I spent time in research, and I spent time in entrepreneurship. Um, and I had an amazing time. It was really, really amazing. Yeah. So what made that switch? Because you have, you have some amazing publications. 2018, <laughs> I think it has four or 500 citations already. Uh, what made you decide, instead of going for a PhD, to do startups? So the truth is that I was very fortunate in my research. I got the chance to work with some really amazing professors and people. With Marin Sonjacic, right? Marin is absolutely amazing. A little fun fact, uh, he and I went to the same high school in Croatia. Are really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is the coolest thing. Um, Marin is always one of, I think, the most quiet, quietest people. Um, and he'll, I, I think the thing that Marin taught me more than anyone else in this world is that you kind of always want to speak last because you want to hear what other people have. And I think I was very fortunate to kind of have this network of advisors working with me um, that really propelled me and forced me. So, so, I, so I loved research mm -hmm. and I love physics, right? How do we know how this water works, right? It's because we learn about the universe around us. We're yes. curious humans. We want to discover every day. But I, the thing that I think pulled me away from academia is if you want to change the world, then I love academia deeply, but I don't think it has some of the right structures set up to enable you to do those at large scale. Mm -hmm. Like when you think about it, right, you kind of think about progress as this balloon. 
And academia's job is to like poke fingers, right? And see a little bit if they can make the balloon a little bit farther in a certain direction, mm -hmm. right? Can we, you know, invent nanophotonic systems with neural networks, right? Or can we discover, right, what the more fundamental masses of an electron or, you know, a quark or something like that? It pokes the edges. And I think that's totally reasonable. I think that's totally good. But I think you need someone, once you poked it, to really take that and carry that into the world. Right? Like to take one of those nuggets and say, I'm really going to focus on this. I'm going to build a team around it. We're going to focus. We're going to learn how to rally around it. We're going to do it. And so I, I, I don't think academia sets up quite to do that because it's not supposed to do that. And so in a lot of those ways, that's why I was excited about entrepreneurship because that's a little bit more, how do you really rally a team? How do you build a vision? How do you learn how to manage people? Right? How do you help people grow? How do you help people really become better humans? Um, and I think those things are really enticing. I think those things are interesting. So I think that's what I'd say where academia really taught me and I had some amazing mentors that really built in me a sense of you could achieve anything and you could do anything. Both Max and Maren did that to mass massive degrees. And so I think from that, I really started to think, how do I want to take these things, apply them in the world? And I think entrepreneurship's a little bit more of a natural way to do it. So tell us a bit about the biggest successes and failures that you had with, with your first startups, because I'm sure you tried a few times before you actually succeeded. <laughs> uh, how, much how much time do we have? Um, uh, yeah, I'm more than happy to. Uh, we'll just go down the list. I think there's yeah, like The failures are always interesting. 14. <laughs> 14? Um, uh, there's a lot. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I'm happy to. Uh, so I first started that kind of, we're going to call it a project in high school, right? We got some revenue. Mm -hmm. um, I think what that taught me is that it's really hard to make a dollar. Like, like, right, like, like there's this pivotal moment when you convince someone to give you a buck, and that's a beautiful moment, and that's a beautiful thing. Um, and it's really hard to do that. Honestly, it's really, really hard to do that. Um, I don't know. If, I don't know. If, yeah, it's just it's incredibly hard. So the next thing I did was I went down to Brazil with a couple of friends, and we started a company in home automation. Effectively, we were building Nest for Brazil. And it was an amazing company, and I worked with a really cool team who were very smart, far, like, more business savvy than I, and they were kind enough to teach me you know, how to think about business. Um, and I ended up having a falling out with them because of equity. Effectively, mm -hmm. we didn't come to terms in terms of how we should split things. Yeah, it happens. Yeah, you know, and like, yeah, I'm sure it's, it happens a lot. Um, Been there already, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you gotta, you, okay, I got it. Um, completely falling apart, you guys managed to rectify it. Oh, we managed to fix it, yeah, that's okay. fine. <laughs> well, congratulations, you are, you are much more skilled and mature than I. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was, honestly, in hindsight, the deal that I was offered was fair. Um, I just didn't at the time see it or understand that, honestly. Mm -hmm. And I, I, it, was, it was my own fault. So I think from that, I learned a little bit to, it's not so much about getting 10% of a small pie, it's getting 1% of a massive pie or yeah. something like that, right? Um, and I say 10% because after dilution, it goes down. Um, and so I think that's kind of what that company started. So mm -hmm. the, re the reason I'm saying this is, and I think maybe this is, I think it's an important thing, thing to think about. When you're young, you don't have a lot of time, right? Like, you're very limited, right? Like, yeah. me and you are like, our careers, right, are a fraction of what a lot of people's are. And we have a lot of years of, of exciting growth and opportunities. So if you're going to do really cool things, you need to be really intentional about the things that you're learning and making sure that you're learning those lessons very quickly. Think about machine learning. If you have 10,000 examples, it's pretty easy to train a neural network, but it's really hard to train it if you only have five. Yeah. And the question is, how do you do that really fast and really fast in your career? So I think I kind of learned that getting a buck is really hard. Equity splits are really hard. Just starting a company takes a lot of work. 
That's probably the next big lesson I learned. I worked on a project for four years, and we pretty much produced zero results from it, right? Like zero. Um, and so that's, I think, what I would say is, you know, there's a lot of successes, a lot of failures. And I think me and you could sit here and probably finish 15 water bottles uh, <laughs> talking about all of them. But I think it's more of how do you set up a pattern of like learning and success and things like that. But I don't know. I'm curious for you, like what was maybe the biggest failure that you ever did in business? Well, I started off without a business plan. There you go. Yeah, 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 <laughs> and I hired yeah. five people and then I noticed that my idea was shit. Yep. And then I had to quickly come up with a new idea. Hiring people early, I appreciate you mentioning that. When we started FPG, we out of the gates hired two people, two engineers, both left, right? Like, 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 like. And the worst case was that it took like one, two years like, like to leave. And the problem was like fundamentally, we just didn't know what we were doing. We had no idea what we were doing, right? And to your point, we didn't have business plan of anything. And um, yeah, hiring too early is a massive problem because it's very enticing, right? You're very limited by your time. You're like, oh, what if I had to deal with people? But the reality is that Every person you add, it becomes more and more challenging to get everyone on the same page. Yeah. And so, yeah, but it's tempting because if you can hire people, then you can do things quicker. And obviously, it's a big risk, but it might push you forward much quicker. I 100% agree with you because I think one of the massive challenges is context switching. Right? Like when you're a founder, you have to do so many different things and you're pulled in so many directions. Mm -hmm. And when you're an early employee, it's the same thing too. Right? Like anyone working in an early stage company, you have to wear 50 different hats on 20 different days. And that context shifting costs a lot. Right? And so because of that, I agree with you. I think hiring people for specialized roles really helps you know, accelerate things. Um, but it's, it's a double-edged sword. Right? Yeah. And to the points on management earlier, management is a very, very, very different skill than independent contributor work. And yeah, oh, that's yeah. hard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that's like really hard. Yeah. I also meant to ask you, so you did a lot of research on like, some simulations slash predictions, which you mm -hmm. seem to have incorporated later into some, is it either stock market predictions or prices predictions? Can you tell us about that research and then how you applied that? Yeah, I appreciate your question. Um, so what we were effectively doing was we were taking, so there were a couple of different parts of the research, but that core part, we were taking neural networks and applying them to problems in physics to see if we could solve those physics problems more quickly and effectively. Sometimes this is known as surrogate modeling, mm -hmm. right? You're effectively creating a more abstract version of the problem where, you know, say we were doing a gravitational wave or say that we were doing something with a nanophotonic simulation. The simulation may take five minutes or like five days or whatever, right? Numerical simulation, iterate every single element, yeah. keep going. And instead you could do that, say, with a neural network and you could do that in like 15 seconds, right? Um, and the powerful part of that was not only that it could do the simulation faster, but because it was a neural network, there was an analytical gradient. And because of that, it was a word of the day, manifold, uh, where you could try to optimize and kind of find you know, the max of the min on the manifold. And you could do that in a much better fashion because instead of kind of relying upon these adjoint methods and things like that, where it's kind of you know, numerical pinpointing, uh, you could actually follow an analytical gradient in the right direction. So when you introduce more higher dimensional problems, it's able to find those, lo those minimums actually a lot more effectively, right? And, and so that was kind of, so, so that was the crux of it, right? The crux of it was like, machine learning, go team. Physics problems, hard. How do we marry those to solve hard problems? Um, and we were very fortunate because we came in at a time when the field was pretty underdeveloped. Um, honestly, like, like when you look at this field nowadays, like everyone does it, like everyone's working on it. Like 50,000 people have applied and done this. And so if I was a researcher today, uh, I'd get laughed out of the room because people are like, you're an idiot. Uh, and I just got really, really lucky. I got incredibly fortunate because photonic systems in particular 
um, are relatively, I don't want to say simple, but they're relatively straightforward for networks to be able to predict and model. Um, and then the second part of that is we just had a very clear cut like implementation case that we wanted to use. And so we wrote this paper and we designed this kind of framework to be able to do this. Um, and kind of using that framework, you can then solve other problems too, right? Because you can kind of solve any inverse design problem. Um, and so, yeah, exactly. So, so then I was kind of interested, okay, in the financial world, what does maybe some of this look like? And so, you know, as, as, as you probably know, um, doing research, there's like a lot of data cleaning. Yes. You spend like a lot of, yeah, a right? Lot like, of it. <laughs> yeah, like 90% of it. Um, and so what we did was we spent a lot of time doing the data cleaning, and I was very fortunate because like that was a copy and paste to uh, traditional markets and yes. equity markets, right? Because it's the same thing of building systems for data capture, data storage, you know, being able to uh, to hallucinate, being able to kind of go historically and things like that. Um, so anyway, so, so I took some of that, took some of the models, applied in different financial domains, uh, and started experimenting with some of that. Yeah, and that was kind of the crux behind one of the projects that I worked on. That was the project I actually worked on for four years that I commented. We had some success, but incredibly limited success. Is that the one where you sold something for $20 only, or? No, 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 yeah. That one we made more than 20 bucks. Okay. Uh, but, 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 but we made the 20 bucks because we just said, well, why don't we just use our own money instead of other people's money? And then, <laughs> yeah, we made some money in the stock market. Uh, and so we did well on that, yeah. But that wasn't the $20 no. one. I, I yeah, appreciate okay. your question. That's a very reasonable question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing that I'm really curious about, so I, I used to work for DE Shaw and my job was mostly like doing, no, very good, okay. Lo love okay. DE Shaw. And my job was doing, well, simulations, but they were always just Monte Carlo simulations. So we would assume that stocks move with the log normal distribution, something like that. But it wasn't really something that you could use for predictions. How, how do you get from the point where you can just model a random market to like actually predicting what's going to happen? Okay, so you have a great question, and this is where it's a I billion-dollar question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think, I think, I think, I think, I think Deshaun might try to acquire us if I answer this question too intelligently right now. Like, I need to watch my. It's funny when I started actually. Funny you mentioned Deshaun when I first started doing the financial stuff. I, I talked to a couple of advisors and family friends. Literally, like three of them were like, "Why don't you just go work at Deshaun? Like, why are you trying to do this yourself?" Um, and I was like, "I don't know. Start a company." And they're like, you're an idiot. It's like, more exciting, well, you're though. Poor. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, entirely. It's way more exciting. Maybe what I'll say is we didn't crack the entire future. The prediction was pretty limited in terms of the things that we could achieve, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, you can discretize these spaces and say, okay, what are my probability? What's my probability distribution of like the next event or the next two events, right? And you can kind of play those things out, right? Mm -hmm. The same way you're kind of doing these Monte Carlo over long periods. But we were typically doing very short period hallucinations. And so by doing that, you know, you import. Um, so it's funny, now that I'm in the crypto space, I understand these models like a lot better and I actually know how they work nowadays. Typically speaking, what you're doing is you're taking in factors from the order book or factors from the market, right? Most, you know, systems are taking anywhere from five to 35 different factors, you know, say depth of order book or number of trades in the last minute or amount of, you know, like, I don't know, like RSI or, you know, MACD, right? There's some amount of technical indicators you look at just mm -hmm. from prices. There's some amount of order book indicators you look at. There's some amount of trade data that you look at. And you effectively just compile net metrics across these things, net technical indicators, and then you feed them into a model and then you try to predict what the hell is going to happen next. Um, and sometimes those models work, sometimes they don't. So, so in crypto space, what Floating Point Group does is we really are focused on providing secure, efficient access to the crypto ecosystem. Mm -hmm. What that means is if you're a crypto fund and you've got you know, 50 million bucks and you want to buy some Bitcoin or buy some ETH or buy some Cardano, mm -hmm. we make that very easy for you to do. 
And then afterward, you kind of have that, and we have accounts at all the major exchanges, custodian partners, OTC desk, et cetera. And we enable you to kind of move those funds, trade, custody, move it around, et cetera, very effortlessly and easily. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's kind of what we do. So it's more that we sit on a high level of building infrastructure. We don't necessarily build as much predictive modeling nowadays. Mm -hmm. We do some of that on our trading side, on, on our agency trading side. But I wouldn't say that you know we're trying to crack the bank and find alpha in every opportunity. So speaking of crypto, how, yeah. did, you get, how did you get into it? Um, Poor life decisions. <laughs> Poor life decisions. <laughs> Uh, I had a friend, I had a friend of mine, Van. So you gotta understand Van Fu. I gotta give Van Fu a shout out. He's, he's my homie. Van Fu is the kind of guy who likes unpasteurized milk, doesn't believe in sleeping in a bed, and flies down to Miami for a 222-2022 concert of Kanye West decided the morning of. <laughs> so he's an interesting character, but he's probably the smartest guy I've ever met. And he was in my fraternity. Um, and there's kind of a funny story, and you might appreciate this. So I was president of the fraternity, he was pledge trainer. And so we kind of worked together on various projects. And he came to me and he's like, John, 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 we have to organize initiation. Uh, and he hadn't organized it at all. And so he's like, John, I've really messed up. I've dropped the ball. I didn't organize this. It's in like a week. Can you please help me organize it? And I was really overloaded with classes. You know, we were taking a lot of classes, trying to do research, things like that. So I actually called my mom. I was like, hey, mom, hey, mom, can you help me with this? Uh, and she did. And she found like a restaurant, found a limo service, organized travel, all the bookings, everything. And then we had the event, it was very successful, and Van came up to me like, Van, it's like, how did you do that so well? Like, that was organized so well and so amazingly. And so Van from that, like, really respected me. And it was completely because of my mom, all right? So <laughs> shout out to Victoria Purefoy, because she's an amazing mother. Um, and so uh, about six months later, he's like, John, I really think we should look in the crypto space and see what we can do. Um, and so we started talking, we started looking. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty shocking, right? Like. How many times in your opportunity do you get to look over a field and just be shocked at how bad it is and how young it is, right? Like, I mean, you do work in quantum algorithms and quantum systems. Like, what the future of quantum right now is pretty incredible. And if someone came to you and was like, hey, you know, I've got this computer that has fault-tolerant quantum computing, you'd be like, okay, yes, let's do that. It's the holy grail. <laughs> yeah, exactly, it's the holy grail. Um, and so that was kind of what I saw in crypto is, okay, this is something that really could solve some of the biggest problems of our generation and biggest mm -hmm. problems of our time. Um, and how can I be a part of that? And so that was kind of that. So, so, so I got pulled away um, and started doing it. And then I called up my friend Kevin, who I knew from Missouri. Uh, I got to use the right name for it. Um, and I said, hey, Kevin, I'm working on this thing. You want to come? Uh, and 24 hours later, Kevin booked a plane ticket to Boston. And then we all moved to New York. And that was the story. So wow. Yeah, that was, that was, and that's, that's how we started the company. And that's where we did it. Yeah, it's it was great. four years, right? It has, oh goodness gracious, you're dating me. Yes, four and a half. So we technically formed, we first, we had the first meetings late 2017. So in December of 2017, mm -hmm. we officially formed the company in 2018. Uh, and then, yeah, yeah, I guess four years, yeah. Wow, well, you're now almost 30 people, yeah. right? That's crazy. How well, did you grow so quickly? No, so it's funny. <laughs> we haven't grown that quickly yet. We are about to grow very, very quickly. I'm going to give this one a shout out to luck and fortune. Um, we brought in some people that were really amazing and really taught us what it means to build a good company. Mm -hmm. right? like I, I think if there was like one theme that I could recommend to anyone, it's you're genuinely an average of the five people you spend the most time with. So find the people that you like and find the people that you idolize and spend as much time with them. When I was in college, my fraternity, my big was so much smarter than I and he encouraged me to do leadership and encouraged me to do things like that. And my professors, like Martin and Max and things like that, 
they both encouraged every day to think harder, to work harder, to push it further. Um, and I was very fortunate to be supported. So I guess if you ask me, you know, how did our company grow? I'd say amazing support throughout. Right? When we came out of MIT, we were very well connected with the MIT ecosystem, so we leveraged a lot of that. Um, and then I would say that we brought in some people to the organization who really taught us what it meant to be good leaders and good people and good at what we do. Right? We hired, you know, we convinced some of the guys from our fraternity to drop out and join us. Thank God they did, because we owe so much of the success to them. Um, and so, yeah, so I guess what I'd say is to your comment about scaling is hiring good people, because you're one person and you can only move at the speed of one person. Yeah. But if you bring a team around you and you kind of rally them, then it can be pretty exciting. Amazing. So I'm sorry, yeah, I don't mean to go slow on that one, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, when, when people mention crypto, they very often, most people just think, oh, yes, that's speculative asset where you can just put your money. It's basically like gambling. Um, but it's actually much more than that, right? So can you explain to us, I mean, your, your company isn't just like investing money in crypto. You're actually doing something that provides a lot of value by making it easier to send money to buy and sell. I think there's a couple stages to that. And maybe what we'll do is we'll parse it out. So if you're okay with it, let's first maybe talk about crypto and what crypto's about, what crypto sure. does. Okay, so I think it's totally reasonable. Okay, so crypto right now, a lot of people use it for speculation, right? I'm gonna buy Bitcoin because I think the price is gonna go up, right? Go team, go team. Um, a lot of people done very well from that. A lot of people made a lot of money from that. Speculation is kind of where crypto started. And it's fair for that. It's an uncorrelated asset. It's powerful. When you think about modern portfolio theory, it fits in the systems very well. Um, but that's like, yeah, exactly as you said, a pretty sliver use case. What crypto is more, so, so crypto really has two other sides that are really powerful. So one is the general concept of like distributed ledger technology and blockchain technology and things like that. Uh, I don't think we need to cover that too deeply. Mm -hmm. I imagine most people that are kind of familiar with it kind of understand the power of like distributed systems and distributed like databases and things like that and the power that can mean to data. So there's the technological side, which is just like being able to split up these data and being able to have that across blockchains, right? is very powerful. When you talk about like smart data, right? When you talk about, you know, financial data, things like that, like, like it's, it's powerful to be able to do that. And when you think about say like our own digital identity, right? Instead of having all of our data owned by say big tech companies, like you can actually start to have that in distributed, completely owned fashion, right? I can control my identity and I can agree to sell that to Google or I can agree to sell that to Facebook and I can set a term on that and I can say, I only wanna sell my data up till here, right? Yeah. And I think when you think about the greatest problems of our time, I think data privacy is probably one of the top, right? And that's gonna unquestionably for the generation that's growing up right now, that's gonna be their problem going through life. The other component is, I think, more the financial side. And I think the financial side is where it gets really interesting. So just like a couple of quick like, stats on this, right? About 4% of every time you buy something or sell something goes into actually the transaction fees and transaction cost, right? So when I buy a water bottle for $4, roughly speaking, let's see if we can do MIT math on this, 16 cents? Yeah, <laughs> correct. <laughs> See, you can tell which one of us is currently getting a PhD. Let's be very clear. I haven't done an integral in 20 years. When's the last time you did an integral? Probably like two days ago. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. I'm going to be it's honest. It's not I'm something to be jealous of. <laughs> I'm a complete fraud. Um, that's really cool. That's really awesome. What did you integrate? I'm not sure if it's that cool. Some quantum states I don't even remember. <laughs> oh my god, you integrated quantum states. I'm so jealous. Sounds horrible. Like broadcast notation and like everything. Oh, you 100. Yeah, exactly. You did That's real. <laughs> you did real quantum. Oh my gosh, I'm so jealous right now. Um, okay, uh, uh, financial side. Yeah. Um, Four percent of every transaction typically goes into transaction fees, which means there's a lot of money, right? People buying things every mm -hmm. single day. And the scary part about that number is it really hasn't gone down. 
So when you look over the past 10, 20, 40 years, there's been a lot of revelations in technologies and systems. Your laptop you're using is like 10 times more powerful than it was a year ago or whatever. Right, my phone, like I couldn't have even thought of the idea of the internet or whatever. But really the way we transact and really the financial system hasn't changed that much. Why? Two reasons. One, incumbency. There's no real reason why a bank or payment processor or a different organization really wants to change. They're making a lot of money. Every single time they change something, it's just more things on top of it, right? Yeah. It's not like technology where like, if I build a new processor, we can do it a little faster and we're trying to service this thing. It's okay, if you want to buy this, then by golly gee, like you get the money and we move on with life, right? And so incumbency is a massive problem here. And there's incumbency on the regulatory side, right? For most startups wanting to enter this space, it costs anywhere between half a million to $2 million mm -hmm. just to get started on this kind of stuff. Right, so, so incumbency is a huge problem. The second problem is just pure play the technology we're using. So capital markets infrastructure providers, CMIP, really hasn't moved much. The NASDAQ, right, is like four, 10, I think it's almost like 10X now in the past like about four years or whatever, right? Like it's, it's, it's pretty insane how quickly the NASDAQ has grown. Um, and I apologize, that could be a slight exaggeration, but it's grown very, very aggressively. When you compare that to say capital markets infrastructure providers, it's an order of magnitude less. Like they've grown like maybe tens of percents at max. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so right, so, so you have incumbency and you have like really lack of attention and lack of technological innovation. And that's really hammered a lot of the financial system globally. This is why when you go to parts of say China that are using like Alipay or things like this, they're far more advanced than what we have in the US. Right? And you actually think about people with digital wallets and digital money and digital systems and that's much more powerful, much more promising. So the reason I say all this is like, finance underpins everything, right? There's a good quote from Margin Call, which says, the reason I can buy a card I would never afford and a laptop I'll never understand is because of the financial system. It's because of a global financing system of credits and debits. And that system hasn't changed in large part, at least at the institutional in the US, in the past 40, 50 years. And it hasn't changed because of incumbency and it hasn't changed because of new technologies have come in. And I think that that's where crypto is promising because crypto, it's actually pretty revolutionary like when you start to understand the financial systems on it like it enables you to start doing things in really complex ways really quickly like we can just give a really quick example right mm -hmm. right now if you want to do lending borrowing right say you're a bank i give you 10 bucks and the bank of sam charges me saying and gives me an interest rate of say two percent right so my 10 bucks i give you 20 cents two percent yeah 20 cents i think 20 cents <laughs> 20 cents annually one of us getting a phd uh, you can go lend that out to someone else and maybe get 4% from them, and then you'll make the difference, right? Yeah. Great. Awesome. Um, crypto automates that whole thing, right? So, like, there's a protocol, and I can give money into the protocol, and then someone else can take money from the protocol. So, you don't need to exist. The protocol can do the entire thing. Why is that powerful, you ask? Economies of scale, right? Unit cost massively goes down. There's 50,000 people working at Fidelity. There are 15,000 people working across all of crypto. Yet, crypto is a $2 trillion market. Right? Like, when you think about the scale of these things, when you think about the fact that when you start to automate these systems, you can just achieve massive efficiency. That's cool. Like, that is really cool. And so, so, so you can start to remove it. And by doing that, the second thing that that unlocks is uh, the same way we think about computer programs, right? And kind of these functions. Um, my favorite statement of the week is no function bigger than your face, uh, which I think is a great <laughs> statement. Uh, you can start to build interoperable systems. So instead of you just being a bank, right? So I'm giving you money and you're lending it out to someone else, you can now do more complex things. Mm -hmm. 
right? So now I can give you, say, any asset, right? You can take this water bottle, and you can have an NFT of the water bottle, and you can take the deed of that, and you could use that as collateralization on money that you take out, right? You can do it for a phone, you can do it for a car, you can do it for account, like whatever. And so you start thinking about like the layers you can add on top of that. So you can start to like think about your assets, tokenizing your assets, actually being able to you know drive collateralization and collateral value from that. You can think about tokenizing your income streams, right? Like I make a certain amount of money every year. What if I want to create a structure where I can distribute that across multiple people and give that to kind of a central entity, right? How do I actually be able to kind of get borrowing or lending power against it, right? Like if I need money tomorrow, how do I get the money? Go through a bank, it takes you six months to get a mortgage, yeah. right? And so when consumers have gotten screwed by a 23% APY on a credit card per year, and they make less than 1% in their bank account, and crypto comes along and says, no, screw that, we're gonna automate the whole thing and open it up to anyone and give you four, six, 10, 20%, that's pretty cool, that's pretty amazing. Um, and they're able to do that thing because it's a technological innovation and the capital markets infrastructure scene hasn't seen technological innovations in 40 years. So anyways, sorry, I get very excited about this, <laughs> but I think the general summary that I would say here is to your question, crypto I think is speculation today and that makes sense. And there's a question over whether or not speculation can bring in enough money such that that money can help drive true financial change and true financial innovation. Mm. In some ways it is, in some ways it isn't. Um, but yeah, so, so anyways, that's why I get excited about crypto. And then specifically for our role in crypto, yeah, I think our role is to educate and build tooling such that more people can start to come into this space. And that's why we get excited about what we do. Amazing. So it looks a bit like governments are a little bit anti-crypto because you know, with the US dollar, there's a central bank that can regulate everything, but with crypto, they have no con almost no control over it. Do you think that's a major danger for like cryptocurrencies in general? I'll disagree a bit with the statement that governments are against crypto. Um, I think China's maybe the easiest case of this. Well, I was right? just going to mention that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so I think China's like the trivial case of this. So China's central bank digital currency, China CBDC, um, CDBC, I always get that wrong. Oh, every time, every time. Um, China CBDC, CDBC, I'm going to stop. <laughs> China's digital currency. Yeah. Uh, they've been working on that since about 2014, 2015. Right? They've been working on that for five, seven years. And pretty much what they're doing is like, now they're at the stage where they're actually truly doing transactions with it, right? Like it's done a couple billion in transactions and like the numbers are just going up. And so when the Chinese government actually cracked down and said no more crypto, really what they were effectively doing is saying no more of like these other cryptos, but we're trying to promote our own crypto. And so I think to your point, I think your point of phrasing is like really good, whereas governments don't want to give power away to currencies they can't control, they want to give power to currencies they control. And I think everyone agrees that central that cryptos are the future. I think pretty much everyone universally will agree that like we should not have a dollar in our wallet, right? Like it just doesn't make sense. Um, and so everyone's going to move to these central bank digital currencies. China's unquestionably the farthest along. And because of that, China's like, okay, screw it. We're going to force people to start using our system. And you saw that a bit during the Olympics, right? Like they really tried to use a lot of the winter games as kind of a grounding and sounding point for people starting to like use this for actual currencies, you know, buying tickets or buying events or buying food or buying other things with that. And they're going to keep rolling that out so long as, you know, they don't take over Taiwan, um, <laughs> which is a whole other thing. <laughs> yes. Um, so to your statement, I don't know if governments are against crypto. I think, generally speaking, everyone agrees crypto will take over and be the future. I think what governments are against is relinquishing a lot of hegemony and a lot of financial power because they're losing reserve currency status. And you're seeing that in the US, um, and you're seeing that globally as well. So, yeah. Do you think that we'll ever have a decentralized currency, be it crypto or like something else, that is actually stable enough that we can really use it as efficiently as a dollar? Yes. 
how long do you think it's going to take for something like Bitcoin to, to get to that point? So I don't think Bitcoin's going to do it. Because um, Bitcoin's definitely speculative. Uh, there's a lot of groups that are doing uh, algorithmic stablecoins. And, you know, probably the most well-known of those right now are, like, DAI was probably one of the first ones, right? Uh, Anchor and uh, Terra is probably the, or, I'm sorry, I should be more clear, Terra. Um, Anchor's protocol built on it. Um, so there's DAI, there's Terra, there's Frax, which is kind of this new thing coming up that people are maybe a little bit interested in. Um, those are probably the ones that I know off the top of my head, but I've kind of talked to a number of groups lately that are doing it. So I don't think it'll be Bitcoin. I think it'll be algorithmic stablecoins, but 100%. Yeah, I think they'll achieve that status when. Uh, you're, already, I mean, you're already seeing that, right, with USDC or USDT and things like that, people paying salaries, people using it for things. Um, I don't know. Let's say five years from now, maybe you'll see 10% adoption. So you'll see it for, like, the headline things, and you'll see most stores start to accept it, mm -hmm. right? Like, when the major payment terminals start to accept it in restaurants and I can go and pay my bill in USDC or USDT, uh, then I think it's game over for a lot of stuff. So how, how does a cryptocurrency achieve stability if it doesn't have some standard, fixed standard that it's based on? Uh, so, these, so, so these are known as algorithmic stable coins. There's a coin and uh, effectively it like, is trading on the market at like a dollar. And if the coin goes above a dollar, then the organization that's like running this uh, will start dumping more coins on the market. So effectively they'll just start like, you know, aggressively selling and pushing the price down. Mm -hmm. And if the price goes beneath, they'll just aggressively buy and bring it back up, right? And so you can imagine this is kind of just, you know, it's like a PID controller, right? And this organization has what? Typically speaking, how they work is they have two coins. They have one, which is the actual stable coin, an algorithmic stable coin. Um, consider something like Terra, and I just know that because I've been spending a lot of time on that right now. Um, consider something like Terra, where there's just, U e, it's called UST, um, and it's just like a straight dollar. And then they have another, which is actually the currency that the protocol is using. And in this case, like it's Luna, right? And the statement is that effectively, if UST goes too low, then they'll use the Luna to buy and bring it up. And if the UST goes high, they'll sell and bring it back down. Um, now, you might fairly point out, golly gee, John, isn't there kind of a problem where they can just keep dumping it on the market and just absolutely trashing the whole thing? Uh, and that's true, and that's totally 100% fair, and that is entirely valid. Uh, typically speaking, what they're doing is when you give them the dollar, the same way when you give a bank a dollar, they're doing something with it, they're doing something with the dollar, right? Mm -hmm. And so they're generating some reserve from that, and that's what's powering the actual benefits to the actual reserve itself. And so the reserve is slowly being built up because of the actual interest and because of the other things that's happening with the dollar. So I'll pause there. I don't know if that kind of makes sense, but that's kind of the general like V1 version of some of these protocols. Mm -hmm. Some of them are more complicated. Uh, but that's probably the high levels on it. So, yeah. so let me make an analogy to a more old school version of this, yeah, if yeah. I understood it correctly. So let's say the euro and the Swiss franc. The Swiss franc used to be have almost a fixed rate to the euro, and the way it would work is exactly the same way you just explained. The central bank would buy and sell to push the course yes. in a certain direction. But then at some point, pressure started building up because the Swiss economy was doing better than the rest of Europe. And then at some point, the central bank just said, okay, it's enough. We're not going to... We're just going to make the whole thing explode. And suddenly the Swiss franc went up by almost a factor of two, I think. Really? Which, yeah, which was a disaster for a lot of people who had taken loans in, in Swiss, Swiss francs, francs. And suddenly yeah. they owed twice as much as they used to before. Um, is, is there a risk with these currencies? I think so. I think your description is totally fair. Yeah, I think that's actually totally fair. I think right, like dollars are kind of weird. 
right? Like, 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 like we think a dollar is a dollar, but the reality is like a dollar is weird, right? There, there, there's the petrodollar theory, um, which is actually quite a beautiful theory, which is effectively says that the only reason why the dollar is useful at all or used at all today is because the U.S. signed an agreement with Saudi Arabia that effectively required Saudi Arabia to sell oil denominated in USD. And this happened like back in like, I think like the 60s or 70s, right? And effectively, everyone then had to buy oil in USD. So they needed USD. So USD became like the reserve currency in a lot of cases. But like, it doesn't need to exist, right? We could buy things in gold. We could buy things in whatever, right? Uh, and so, yes, to your comment on it, I think there is a chance that those currencies are no longer equal to a dollar and they will eventually break. I don't think they'll happen anytime soon. And I think what you're talking about in that case is truly when we're starting to hit independence. But it's true. I mean, like the US dollar is not a fixed rate, right? Like it changes the value. Seven percent, right? Last yeah. year, a dollar is seven percent less. Um, and so a true stable coin can never exist. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Amazing. That's very interesting. Yeah, yeah I appreciate <laughs> you. I really appreciate you giving that analogy because I think you're totally right. Like I think when we think about medium of transactions, it's just it's it's if we're thinking about it in physics terms, right? It's just like a phase transition, right? Like it's just like there's 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 a band at which it's like okay, this is okay to be used for a transaction, and there's a band when it's just like not, right? Um, and Bitcoin, when you know it goes up and down by ten percent a day, probably not great, right? Uh, but if you can maybe make that an order of magnitude less, that's probably powerful, and that's why FX is powerful. Yeah. Oh yeah, amazing. Another topic I want to talk about, and we're not giving investment advice here. Would you do you buy cryptocurrencies? Do you think people should invest in it, or should they rather invest in something else? Thank you for giving that disclaimer. <laughs> I, think, I think our legal team wanted that disclaimer too. I think I probably have to give it too. We're not giving legal, uh, uh, legal or investment advice in any capacities. Let me ask you, when you think about buying Bitcoin, uh, what do you mean by that? Are you thinking buying the physical asset or buying exposure or buying what? Well, let's just say I have $20,000 in my pocket. Um, what should I do with it? Assuming I don't need it for food and housing. You have 20 grand in your pocket? Sorry, you're what's, asking what's me the best way of investing my money? Do you think I should buy, you know, invest, let's say, in my own startups and, and buy, I don't know, S&P 500, like, like stocks? Should I invest in cryptocurrency and housing? You know, what is the best way of investing your money? Okay, so you're currently getting a PhD. Yes. So you probably, you have some expenses, but you probably don't have like massive expenses where you're like a family, cars, kids, and everything, right? Yeah. Okay, understood. Um, and are you working on like a project right now or like a company in any way or no? Well, I have a company, but it's not paying out money at the moment. I okay. just own the stocks. That makes total sense to me. So I spend money on two things. So I spend money on making the company go faster and saving time, right? And for me, that's like the only things I spend money on. Other than that, just make more money, right? Like, <laughs> why not? Yeah. Um, and so if the question is, how do you make more money? Okay, there's different ways to do it, right? There's been pretty, in crypto, there are various degrees of risk, and some of those carry various degrees of rewards, right? Like you can do, if you kind of know where to go and you kind of know how to milk the system, right? You can typically get somewhere between five to 30% returns uh, with like not a huge amount of risk in some areas, right? And like, you, you know, if, like if you have 40 grand, you can just, you should throw it in there like unquestionably, right? Um, not legal advice, please. Like there's unquestionably risk in this and you need to think about it. It's not the most complex things. Like there's straightforward ways to do it. Some of these protocols generate quite high yields. There's more exotic things where you know you can get ten thousand or twenty thousand or just buy Bitcoin and just see what happens, right? Um, and you can do that, but I would say that that's much more on the investing side. And I think if like you're young and you have money, then it totally makes sense to invest. Like why not, right? Like, invest in cryptocurrencies. 
or? I'm gonna say invest generally. We're not gonna narrow it to crypto. Uh, I think crypto is powerful right now because of the leverage implicit in the space. Like if you're gonna go buy Amazon, odds that Amazon 2Xs probably exist, but it's probably not massive. Yeah, it has an expected growth of a yes. few percent per year. 100%. With very little volatility. So I think if you're gonna buy Amazon, why not leverage the bet on Amazon, right? And like, that's kind of what you're doing in crypto. Like you're just leveraging bets, right? The vol, the vol you're seeing in the mm -hmm. space is just much higher. Yeah. Then you could even go further and say, why buy Bitcoin? Why not buy an altcoin that has even higher vol, right? And so I think the investing makes a lot of sense. I think you wanna be cognizant. I think, you know, Van and I and Kevin kind of live a little bit of the mantra right now of like max volatility. Uh, but I probably wouldn't recommend doing that because, like, go put it all on black. Like, we were talking about 21 earlier. Like, maxing vol is going to Vegas and betting it all on roulette. It's probably not the best approach. So maybe maximizing smart volatility is a better phrase. So now, now that you mentioned Vegas, don't you think that most stocks, they have an expected growth? Like, let's say I buy mm -hmm. the S&P 500. It's probably going to go up 5% annually, plus or minus a bit. But with cryptocurrencies, is there, I don't see any reason why I would expect... It, the price to go up because essentially if I buy a Bitcoin and with the intention to sell it, I'm kind of speculating that I'm going to find someone who is, quotation marks, dumb enough to give me more money for it than I originally paid, right? So I think you're totally right. And this is where maybe I'll go a controversial thought. Um, so there's two things. So, so we were talking about this earlier. Like we started the conversation talking about like uses of crypto and things like that. So there's like two key uses, right? There's speculation, buying it because you think the next guy's gonna pay more, and there's actual true transaction costs, right? When I send you a Bitcoin, I'm paying $30 literally to send you that money, right? Like try go shipping a million dollars across the country, right? Go talk to like ATM. ATMs are like really cool. I don't know how much you're interested in like ATMs, but ATMs literally they hire like these armored trucks to roll around at the ATM and roll oh, yeah. the Right, so it costs money to ship money. Like if I'm gonna send you, right, like a million bucks, there's a cost of like, I don't know, hiring an armed guard to take that money and give it to you, right? Like if you're considering like physical bills. So the point is that when I send you Bitcoin, that's when I'm paying like 20 bucks to, right? Like when you pay the gas fee or when you pay the crypt, the mining fee or whatever, that's because you're literally paying for a service. And so the reason I say this is there's two things driving price. There's speculation and there's true use cases. I need to buy some Bitcoin because I need to pay, use the Bitcoin to pay for every time I use the Bitcoin, right? Like there's a fee there associated. Yeah. And I think a naive assumption that a lot of people make is that as crypto becomes more used, uh, the price will go up. And that's not true because right now speculation drives 99% of the drive and utility is like maybe 1%. Like the truth is if I want to send you money, is that worth 20 bucks? Is that worth 200? Is that worth two, right? I don't know. I can probably do it on Venmo even cheaper than yeah. that. And so I think there's a conversation here, which is slowly over time, speculation will probably drive prices a little less. Utility will probably drive prices a little more. But the problem is the true cost for utility may not be what it is today. It may be lower, a lot lower. And so to your question over like, what's the point of buying Bitcoin because you think it'll go up? So the naive response to that is like more people using it will obviously bump it up. Uh, but yeah, I think that argument breaks down. I think the second argument that still holds is uh, every institution in the world, there's only like, there's going to be at max, I think like, I'm going to screw this. At max, there's going to be around 20 million Bitcoin, um, right? there's over 56 millionaires in the world. So every millionaire can't own a Bitcoin. So if you naively assume that Bitcoin will become more popular in the future and millionaires will want to be able to have a Bitcoin on their yacht, then you should probably buy Bitcoin. Okay. Not in financial not, advice. Not, 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 not financial keep, advice. Keep emphasizing that <laughs> so we don't get in trouble. All right. Uh, and for the end, I want to ask you something very different. So we talked about research, about 
companies. Yeah. What do you do outside of this, like in your free time? What are your hobbies? <laughs> More crypto. <laughs> um, I don't know what I like to do. What do I like to do? What do I like to do? What do I like to do? Um, I work out a lot. I hang out with my, oh, we have a box at Madison Square Garden, our company. We go to a lot of events. I went to the Elton John's concert this week, which was pretty cool. Oh, he had his concert oh. this week. Mm -hmm. oh, I really like, wanted to go there, but the tickets were so expensive. Yeah, well, come to New York anytime, please. I would love to have you. And this um, is his last tour, right? Mm -hmm. oh. You gotta understand. It's so this sad is, I missed it. <laughs> this is the 140th concert on his last tour. So I think the last tour has been going on True. for a while. True. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think it's going to go on another three years, if I'm not mistaken. Like, like I actually get Okay, so there's still a chance I can see Elton John in real life. <laughs> I think so. I think the odds are okay. Um, but no, he was amazing. He was really good. Elton John was the first concert I ever saw. So yeah, we go to a lot of concerts. We go to a lot of events. We watch a lot of movies. Um, I think the part about starting a company that's more important than almost anything else is just emotional. Where's your headspace? And kind of what are you thinking? Um, and so we spend a lot of time just getting to know, having fun, getting to see the city and things like that. There are a lot of smart people watching. Are you looking for any new hires? Do you have any open positions that you're currently <laughs> desperately looking for? I think so, yes. We're roughly 30 people right now. We're trying to scale pretty aggressively this year. Um, and so, yeah, we're hiring people across engineering, products, sales, uh, just smart people, smart, broke-driven people. If you know any, please, please, please. Um, yeah, I would say, honestly, we're open to anyone and everyone. Um, we hired our best friends from high school, and we've hired people that we've had two calls with. Um, and they've both been the most amazing people we could ever imagine working with. So, yeah, I would absolutely love to talk if people are interested in crypto, if people are interested in kind of working in a culture where it's really about learning, improving yourself, and being intelligent, and kind of thinking about, you know, where, how does the world change and where does the world go? would love to absolutely talk to people um, because, by golly gee, we can't do it all ourselves, and it's all about building a community. Amazing. So the website is uh, floating.group, right? You've nailed it. There's .group domains in case you're wondering <laughs> that. Yeah. And open positions are probably listed there, I suppose. Exactly. So, and you're welcome to reach us as well at info at floating.group. You can see our jobs listed at floating.group website. Um, and in any way, you're, ever, you're always welcome to reach out to me at john at floating.group. Um, and sincerely, I would love to talk to anyone and everyone uh, because I, 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 I've only gotten to where I am because I get the chance to talk to really amazing people. So I appreciate that. And Sam, I want to say thank you so much for this conversation. I really appreciate it. Well, thank it. you for joining us. And thank I wish you a great stay here. By the way, welcome back to MIT. I hope you have a good you. time here at the conference. <laughs> and yeah, thank you for being on the channel. Well, thank you so much for having <laughs> me. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks. All right. Cool. That was an amazing interview. Thank you so much.